everyone, Raw Health Rebel Podcast is back and this time with a very special episode. I actually have a guest host, my friend and fellow homeopath, Meet Carmen, talking to Dion Tablet. Dion is an amazing homeopath and has years of experience, written several books and he is just an absolutely awesome lecturer at CHE where both Monique and I studied and where we met first time. Um, Dion talks about his introduction to homeopathy when he was a drummer in his band and he was a he was asked to be a case study for his friend's homeopathy and he was cured of his asthma so he went off off to train as a homeopath himself and he now treats patients online. Um, Monique and Dion discuss what is homeopathy, sources proving that it actually works, um, the importance of your constitutional remedy, the treatment of long COVID, genetic predisposition to illnesses, the layers methodology in complex cases, the treatment of atopic diseases, including eczema and hay fever, and the journey to healing. So tune in and look at the links below in the show notes where you can connect with Dion and both Monique. Enjoy. So hello, my name is Monique Carmen, and today I'm guest hosting the Raw Health podcast on behalf of Lisa Strabak. I'm excited to welcome Dion Tabret. Dion was one of my lecturers when I was studying homeopathy and he was also my supervisor. So uh, Dion, first, thank you very much for agreeing to do this for us. Um, um, I ask you to start by introducing yourself and how you got into homeopathy. Oh, there's a story. Um, <clears throat> well, um, as you already said, my name's Dion. Uh, I didn't know anything about homeopathy in until uh, I must have been 18, 18 years old. And um, we had a new drummer in the band and he was studying homeopathy. Um, and during one of the rehearsals, I used my asthma inhaler. <clears throat> and he looked at me whilst I was doing this. And then during one of the breaks said, um, oh, I'm training for homeopathy, I need some graduation cases would you be one of my cases and I said yeah I don't know what you're talking about but I'll give it a go because I'd used inhalers since 16 so I'd used them for a good three plus years that's taken up to 19 um and he took my case and he prescribed me some remedies and over a course of about four to six months peak flow readings went up ventilin use dropped to zero and eventually I could uh, come off the becotide and I didn't need my inhalers anymore. And uh, essentially I didn't have asthma anymore. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because, you know, the consultant had said, I'm going to need this for life. That's my, that's my deal. You know, I've got um, IgE antibodies that are going to fire off and cause allergies all the time. So that completely contradicted that. And I thought, this, this is really good. Um, and so I started asking him for books and researching and reading. And then uh, he said, why don't you go and train at the college? And so this was the days of the London College of Homeopathy in Portland Place near the BBC building, uh, run by Barbara Howard and Robert Davidson. And I thought, yeah, why not? So I went up and had an interview with them. And, and I was 20 then, and they said, no, you're too young. <laughs> <laughs> go away come back when you're older and I thought that's disappointing so I said I 
I left it a week or two and then I contacted them and said, no, I disagree. I'm not too young. Why can't I do it now? You know, if I was going to study medicine or anything like that, I'd be considered fine. And they said, oh, all right, you're keen. You can come along then. We'll see how it goes. And I then started, started training then in 1989 and then qualified in 92. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. Direct, direct good experience. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what, well, in my experience, that's how most people find it. Someone yeah. will stumble across it. Do you have a view as to why it's not more widely known? Oh, I've got lots of views on that. <laughs> I think, first of all, it's the order of magnitude of money. I think if you're preparing research and design and for an allopathic drug, you're talking different orders of magnitude of money, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, is one of the most successful industries on planet Earth in terms of profit. And we're talking millions and billions of pounds, dollars, whichever currency you choose. The preparation of homeopathic remedies, it's thousands. It's completely different. You know, the revenue to get back from the pharmacy is, n is nothing. It's nothing compared. The main effort is the acquisition of knowledge. It's studying the materia medica, you know, 3,000 plus different remedies, 4,000 remedies. So it's time consuming to study the subject. Um, but I think, yeah, the money aspect is really important. I think, you know, the pharmaceutical industry set up and sponsors and funds and research and its return revenue is vast. That's just not the case with homeopathy. Um, I think one of the other reasons why it's not so widely used is the skills that you have to acquire to practice well. It's a long, hard slog. It's not easy. And I'm sure that's true for every medical system. Um, but yeah, it's time intensive and it's hard work. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, um, I find that when I'm talking to people about homeopathy, you keep getting this, but, you know, there's no evidence for it. I don't know if you see that in your practice as well. Uh, that is a sort of reflex reaction that people will say, because yeah, that's what's portrayed through the media. It's not evidence-based. There is good evidence. There is, and the three places that I recommend people look at are, um, oh, what's it called? The Homeopathic Research Institute, um, the faculty page, um, and George Vitalkis's research page. And Vitalkis is interesting because he'll get research stuff from East Europe and, and Russia and places like that that we don't so readily get. Uh, but the, yeah, there is compelling evidence. Uh, it's, there's nothing 100% conclusive in molecular mechanisms, of course, but that's also true for a lot of allopathic medications. I think that it's not a level playing field. We can have great clinical results and um, they are often denied. So a, a common situation we're taking on diagnosed pathology is if you're successful in practice and cure it, the medics will say, oh, it's a misdiagnosis, you know, or, you know, we, we make mistakes. This was one of those mistakes and they'll backpedal and say, this isn't the case. And this is why it's essential for us to keep evidence. When somebody comes with a diagnosis with blood results, um, scan results, etc. We should, if with their permission, ask for copies of these and keep them uh, from before, during, and after treatment. And likewise, 
with visible pathologies, skin cases, we should take photos throughout from before, during and after and just all start documenting this because our, our clinical results can be excellent, but we need the evidence because the, you know, the reflex position is it doesn't work. It, it's, there's no evidence for it. And when people say that and I say to them, oh, have you looked at any of those three research areas that I've talked about? Nobody says yes. Nobody says, oh, yeah, I've trawled through that. They'll have done a Google search online. And then it depends, of course, you know, how spurious is the website that they've looked at that claims there's no evidence for this. So, yeah, I refute that. I think that's incorrect. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I'm um, doing some stuff because I'm looking to go into um, the corporate world and try and introduce it into Lloyds of London, in fact. And yeah. I've been doing some research. And one of the things that I've come across is a few um, prophylaxis papers. So dengue fever in Rio de Janeiro and, and the leptospirosis, so Wiles disease in Cuba. Um, yeah. But they're hard to find. It's really tough to find those papers. And I also pulled out something on the cholera epidemic in 1854. There yeah. was a paper done not that long ago about... Um, how the medical profession had um, repressed the results from the homeopathic hospital because it put the rest of them to shame. But, yeah, you know, hard to yeah. find. And, and you've got to really want to go and hunt them down. So. Yeah. And, and and that's exactly accurate. You know, the and the Cuba 2007-2008 leptospirosis homeoprophylaxis is a case in point. You know, that was done at the Havana Institute in Cuba, a world leader in orthodox vaccinations, and they create and distribute and collate information on their vaccine efficacy for years and years and years. And Gustavo Bracco, who was essentially told to do the homeoprophylaxis, didn't believe in it, said, you know, it's nonsense. I don't know why you're making me do this. Found fantastic results in the order of 80% efficacy. And when he went to write up the paper and publish it, as he would through the normal routes, every single allopathic journal rejected it and he's this, he's a professional scientist who's done this for years with allopathic vaccines and had his papers published um and then all of a sudden all the doors were shut and he had to publish through something like the journal of alternative medicine so you don't find that particular paper anywhere where he would normally do it so it's it is a tilted playing field so it's hard to find this stuff. And you're right, you know, uh, good results are suppressed. They're ignored, suppressed, talked back. And that's why we need to keep the evidence. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a lot of people probably listening to us today who don't know that much about homeopathy. Mm. So how do you explain it to your clients when you get a new client? Okay, the honest truth is I explain less the longer I do it because <laughs> it, it's a tall order to take a case analyze prescribe and explain all the tenets of homeopathy in an hour or 30 minutes so I tend to refer those who are interested to good books but that's not answering your question which I will do um how I explain homeopathy uh how long have we got what sort of time like answer do you want for this <laughs> I think someone who's you know not heard anything about it before got an interest and might be willing to look up a bit more afterwards so just enough to pique a bit of interest and okay. just explain a little bit about you know what makes it different to you know what makes it different to allopathy for example yeah 
Okay, well, uh, do rein me in if I go on too long, because I know that's a tendency. Uh, but homeopathy, it dates back for the formulation of it as a medical system. It dates back to Samuel Hahnemann, born 1755. And he was, uh, he was uh, if you've watched Big Bang Theory, he was Sheldon times 10. You know, he was a childhood genius. He was set, sent to school like all the children, and by the age of 12, he was the teacher had him up in front of the class teaching Greek to his classmates and the teacher actually went to the Hanuman household and said your child is a genius he can do anything he, because the plan was for him Hanuman Samuel Hanuman to follow his father into the porcelain factory and become a porcelain painter and the teacher said yeah he could do that but he could be you know he could be a scientist a doctor a lawyer he could do anything the world's open to him and he persuaded them to send him to university which they did and Samuel studied medicine, was an ardent student, top grades, and short story, he qualified, he went into practice, and he, within a very short space of time, less than a year, he rejected the allopathy of his day because it was leeches, bloodletting, vensection, cupping and blistering, purging with strong chemicals and vomiting and diarrhea. And he said, this is making people sicker. It's not making them better. And so he rejected medicine of his day which was barbaric and horrific. And he, because he was fluent in a number of languages, uh, French, English in particular, uh, he took to translating medical texts from uh, English and French and other languages into German to make his money. And when he was translating a Scottish physician's Materia Medica on Peruvian bark, China, uh, the, Edward Cullen, the doctor from Scotland, said it works because it's astringent. It, it cures malaria fever because it has an astringent property. And Hanuman thought, well, so is lemon juice, so is vinegar. That's not a satisfactory explanation. So what he did was he experimented on himself and he took uh, large doses of Peruvian bark, China officialis, and he reproduced, whilst he was taking this, this drug, all the symptoms of malaria. And he thought, now that's a strange relationship, you know. When somebody's ill, they've got these symptoms of you know, alternate chills and fevers, muscle aches, perspiration. Yet when I'm healthy and I take the drug that cures that, it produces in me the same symptoms. So this was how he formulated the law of similars. And, and basically, we're looking for a reflection of the ill person's symptoms in a library of different remedies. And it's just matching up those. That's why it's called the law of similars. It's like the north pole of a magnet against the north pole of a magnet. Likes repel, similar forces repel. And so from Hanuman's time up to current time, that's exactly what we do. We take somebody's individual case, no matter if it's migraine, eczema, asthma, and we're looking for what their complex of symptoms are and looking to match those to what's in our, in our literature and then giving the similar acting remedy that's it really. fantastic thank you um and you know i mean people coming to you what can they expect um from you i mean do you is it an instant cure is it does it take years does it you know how does it work very important question because uh people can come with the expectation that it can be very quick and for the majority of cases, it's not a day or a week or a month. It's around six months to a year 
to successfully treat cases of eczema or asthma or um, dysmenorrhea or infertility, things like this. It takes a good half a year to a year to normally have, with correct prescribing, have good results. And then what we've done there is we've dealt with what's in front of us at that moment in time. To then go back deeper into the case and address the predisposition, the susceptibility for that disease state to manifest in the first place, that's another three to four years. And this is what Hanneman writes about and what Clark amplified in the prescriber is the dimension of time. It's really hard to communicate to both uh, students and patients. You know, it's not a quick fix. It does take time. But in many instances, it's successful and it works. And, you know, th this is logical. And it's the same examples I use all the time. If, if somebody starts a new diet because they want to lose weight, they don't jump on the scales after a month or two weeks and go, well, why have I not lost one stone? Yeah. Or if somebody starts a new regime of exercise and hits the gym and they go really hard and get sweaty and then two months in go, well, you know, well, where's my six pack? You know, it's, these things take time. Nature takes time to divert and cure. So it's important. That dimension of time is really important. And what does it do? I mean, does it go down through generations? Because you've been practicing for a while now. So yeah. you must be seeing families with different generations. How's that work? Yeah, well, sometimes that's the most wonderful part of practice because you get a hit a stream or a vein of patients who you have a successful result with one of them and then say it's the mum and then she brings in the children one after the other and then she'll send the husband in and then the grandparents and things like that so it all start, starts jumping off and branching out and sometimes you do get good strong correlations between remedy relationships uh, throughout the family you can get oh I've seen this before yeah this is similar to uh your grandmother but then other times conversely you can have two children from the same family three four years apart and they're wildly different you know you think oh yeah you know just using technical terms as it were this one's cal carbo and here comes the daughter the sister now is she going to be calc as well not a chance no this one's phosphorus you know so there's the dice roll is every single time but yeah there's certain similarities but not it's not a constant brilliant brilliant now um You've been writing some books, so um, I have one here. Yeah, there you go, correct Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's um, Burn It Rediscovered. Now, um, for the non-homeopaths and non-techies out there, yeah. um, firstly, what made you want to write a book in the first place? Okay, I was a big fan of James Compton Burnett since I started studying homeopathy. So uh, I just loved his work and... Uh, background he's got 23 small books all clinical based very little philosophy all full of cases long-term cases so over anything from four to eight years on average and his results were fantastic and he was very experimental if something wasn't working he would invent a new way to do something until he got the desired result so I was I was blown away by his books and i was enthusiastic to my classmates and they said yeah yeah it's all right it's not my thing and then when I qualified um the college asked me to come and teach and I started teaching Burnett and 
a lot of the students started saying, you know, oh, you know, when are you going to put this down? Because, you know, this this is good information, but we want it in one place, not just in written notes. And I thought, yeah, it would be quite nice to write a book. But what I also found was that throughout the homeopathic community, all sides claimed Burnett. You know, so if the if we divide the homeopathic community into two categories, you've got what's called the classical homeopaths who adhere to one practical uh, philosophical way of prescribing and then you've got um, the more complex prescribers which may use more than one remedy at a time and use homeopathic polypharmacy both groups loved about that they said you know oh, you know he's one of ours and I thought yeah he's actually both of yours because you know, Burnett would sometimes alternate remedies follow remedies in tandem he would very frequently give a single dose and I thought you know you're both claiming the same thing, but you're not appreciating the other side. So I thought, you know, let's set the record straight. Let's put it down uh, on paper. And also the strong applicability to clinical practice because Burnett, like no other homeopath, really taught me through his books how to address really complex hybrid cases. And uh, there's nothing like it in the literature. So I thought, yeah, you know, that that should be a good one and just you know, self-satisfaction is one of those life's life things isn't it write a book tick <laughs> and was it satisfying it, it was fantastic I'm such a nerd that you know I, I love reading and rereading his books for the research and it's one of those things where you set out on a project like this it's easy to just keep going and keep going and keep going and Burnett actually had a, uh, a sentence in one of his books where he's talking about another homeopath who's always preparing to write a book. And he says, but he never will because he's too uh, perfectionist. And you just have to think if you're if you're preparing a piece of work like that, you just have to think there's a, there's a point where it's done now. It's cooked. It's finished. It may not be perfect, but let's put it out there and move on to the next thing. And that really made me think. Oh, he's right again, isn't he? I just, you know, I just draw the line under it and move on to the next thing. So, <laughs> so in terms of what what you wrote about in Burnett, is there are there any interesting cases that you've dealt with where you've kind of been able to bring to the fore what he talked about? Because, I mean, he was a lot about um, the principle of miasms, and I, he was organ organ remedies as well, wasn't he? If I'm, yeah, I remember correctly. Um, have you got some examples of some interesting cases that might, you know, people out in in our listening community might be able to relate to? Uh, yeah, I can give you abridged versions of cases. I can honestly say that every single day of practice that I'll use his his methods in work. Um, I'm just thinking if the people aren't trained in homeopathy who are listening, they're not going to grasp the idea of some of the technical aspects well i wouldn't be too technical about it but just you know the art of the possible <laughs> of what um what people what what is we are able to achieve i mean for example i'm treating someone with hypertension at the moment yeah and that's again a bit like you talked about with asthma earlier on and the fact that you're going to be put on you know you would have been put on those ventilators for the rest of your life people suffering hypertension perfectly expect to be on their medication for the rest of their life and yet we can do something about that by using some organ remedies so it's that kind of thing you know if you can just give some examples of the art of the possible around um what we do i mean something uh, along the organ front and maybe yeah. something like hay fever yeah okay uh, well we'll start with the organ remedies and i'll just read from the books it's right here in front of me 
So, so this was back in 93. Uh, a guy in his late 70s came to consult and he'd been diagnosed with um, weak muscle in the heart. It wasn't pumping adequately to oxygenate his body. And he was a fit guy. You know, he was a gardener. He was um, a rambler. He looked after his health all his life. And he was now faced with the prospect of allopathic medication to the end of his day. And so he thought, let's search out an alternative. And I don't know how, but he heard of me and he came into the clinic and said, okay, this is my diagnosis. I've got weak heart muscle. They want to put me on drugs. They're leaving me for a few months. Is there anything you can do? Um, so I said, okay, yeah, took his case. And the main symptoms were obviously this diagnosis of weak heart muscle, but he was also very low, very moving in towards depression. And when he'd spoken to the doctor about this, you know, they'd say, yeah, okay, you can have some antidepressants as well, which wasn't what he wanted to hear. He didn't want to be on medication full stop, let alone something for his heart and then something to affect how he's feeling with his mental health. And, and, and where we are, now in society is allopathic polypharmacy as the norm as we get older uh, there's an accumulation of different allopathic medications uh, to keep the person going he was very much against that so i took his case long story short i've got this guy he's depressed or moving into depression he's got weak heart muscle uh for the homeopaths amongst us Lassorum metallicum is one of the remedies that would leap out there as, as one of the high contenders. So he had Aurum metallicum LM1, five drops twice a day for a month. And when he came back, he was no better at all. And I thought, ah, okay, maybe I got the potency wrong, the, the preparation of the remedy. So this time I shifted to Aurum metallicum 12C, and that was given twice daily for a month. And he came back and said, no, there's still no change. He's still getting shortness of breath on, on the smallest exertion. He's still feeling bad. And he knows he's got to go back to the dock soon and start the meds. So I, I, was, um, I was scrambling now, thinking, ah, it's not going to be Aurum. I can't do another third month on that. And I also knew if this doesn't work, he's off. He's not going to stay with me to pursue treatment because there's been no results. So to to buy time, I gave him Crotagus tincture, that's Hawthorn tincture, which is an organopathic remedy for the heart, for the heart muscle in particular. And when he came back, he said, I'm doing great. I'm back in the garden. Um, I'm not getting the shortness of breath. Uh, my old friends from the Rambling Society, have, I've been in touch with them and we're going to go for a gentle walk and scale that up. And he was doing good. And what was interesting for me also was that his depression had lifted because I'd approached the case from a classical perspective where you put the mental symptoms, mind symptoms at the top of the hierarchy and the local symptoms, the heart at the bottom, where his mental health was affected by the limitations of his heart because he couldn't do the things he loved. He got depressed or moving towards that. So simply strengthening the heart muscle meant that he could go back to the things he liked to do. Then there was no need for him to feel low. And that was my first real milestone case in organ remedies. And it did take me back to some of Burnett's works where he said, you know, when, when you get the right organ remedy, you don't just see an improvement in that organ. 
but it ripples out through the entire system and has profound effects elsewhere. It, you know, releases the workload in other places. But um, what did he say? He said, yeah, it'll, it'll return the patient to rude health was his exact term. You know, it'll make them robust and, and strong again. And uh, in that instance, it, it worked beautifully. We did carry on. He did have other remedies, but the Crotagus was really beneficial. And uh, uh, he, didn't need, he didn't need to go to orthodox meds for the rest of his life either. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, that must be encouraging for other people out listening who maybe have got some long term health problems to know that actually there is another way forward and you don't have to stay on allopathic medication. Um, hay fever is an interesting one because um, hay fever is something that's, you know, just dismissed almost by the medical profession. They do. You know, you can spend a fortune on it. But you don't really go to your doctor very often for hay fever. I know some people get injections, but I don't think doctors ever tell people, well, you know, you can cure this. But um, I mean, have you got some cases of hay fever that that you've managed to to cure in your patients? Uh, for hay fever specifically and for allergy states, so animal hairs, you know, dogs, horse, cats, dust mites, um, they all take on average two to three years to get out the other side of there's it with successful treatment there's symptomatic amelioration there's relief within usually four to six months so I'm not saying that the person's sniffing and sneezing and eyes running for those two to three years that's frequently dealt with within yeah six to ten months approximately um, but two to three years to really root out all of it and um there's a number of ways of doing this. And it was Marjorie Blackie, who is the niece of James Compton Burnett, who describes in her book, uh, the predominant ways to treat hay fever. Um, the first one is the law of similars. So the giving of like remedies. So the classics being Allium Sepa, Sabadilla, Euphrasia, et cetera, et cetera. The homeopaths will be recognizing these. These are remedies that mirror the hay fever symptoms. And this, one of the, Additional ways to address this can be to use the anti uh, the allergen in potency. So if you know the specific pollens or mixed pollens or the cat hair, etc., sometimes that can also be beneficial. Um, so those are the two predominant ways. But hay fever sits, it's an expression of a deeper susceptibility. And now we're into the complicated uh, area of chronic diseases or miasms. So this is the individual susceptibility to these things. And this is what takes a number of years to treat through as opposed to the symptom expression. So when you're talking about that, is it, are you talking about sort of um, genetic or family family history, if you like, and, and what you've inherited from your, your parents, your grandparents? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, th this is genetic predisposition. This is people, uh, patients whose genomes uh, they're firing off usually the IgE, the immunoglobulin E antibody in excess against um, an innocuous target. It doesn't need to be, the immune system doesn't need to be that active against that particular allergen that's entering their system. So, yeah, it, it, it's complicated uh, from, the, from the homeopathic perspective. It is predominantly uh, serinum nosode and the tubercular nosodes. And often in hyper allergic cases, or what Orthodox was called atopic cases, where there's the three different diseases of 
uh, hay fever, eczema and asthma, um, then frequently that's a combination of both those two, that's sore, sorinum nosodes and tuberculinum nosodes that are in the, both the family medical history and entwined through the patient's presenting symptoms. So you might have, for instance, uh, for argument's sake, an allium sepa in hay fever symptom similarity, but behind that, and placing the susceptibility to that is the two chronic disease states of serinum and tuberculinum. That's what it takes to unravel over the two to three years with uh, other indicated remedies in between. Brilliant. I mean, for, for those people listening, Allium Super is the one that I use when I'm trying to explain to someone what homeopathy is about. So I always talk to them about, you know, if you had hay fever that had runny eyes and streaming nose, we might give you Allium Super, which is onion, because yeah, the red onion, that's right. causes, causes those symptoms. Yeah, chop it and with your head over the top and all those fumes hit your face, then you get a nice proving of the onion, exactly. which is similar to the hay fever attack. Uh, the thing I'd say is that those cases, they can last months and months through the season, uh, you know, anywhere from March through to September, October now. It's the repetition of the dose. It needs, in many cases, to be four or six times a day of a 6 to 30C of the remedy for the peak of their season with the hay fever. So it's, it's a heavy-handed dosing style. If just given one or two, it rarely is enough. Having said that, you know, I mean, if you've got really bad hay fever, you're popping the antihistamine all day long anyway. Mm. So it's popping true. a homeopathic alternative that isn't going to make you drowsy or, you know, is, is going to have a longer term effect isn't such a bad deal. Exactly. And the homeopathy is it's immune stimulating. It's making the immune system stronger and it's similar to a young child learning to ride a bike. You're training them to get back on the, on the vehicle, start pedaling, gain their balance and strength and stamina, and then they can do it on their own. So it's not it's not a medication that you're looking to take forever, as opposed to something like an antihistamine, which is immune suppressive. It's looking to damp down the body's natural histamine response against an innocuous target. You know, the immune system is firing off too heavily against something that isn't really a danger. So, so the allopathic answer to that is right let's damp down the immune system which you know if you understand the cause and effect that's not gonna solve the problem and i'll tell you now when we have good results with hay fever uh the response from the medics will be ah they've grown out of it and people can grow out of hay fever at eight or 80. <laughs> they might have had it for 20 30 40 years they come along for some homeopathy they get better in you know, yeah 10 months 12 months and then yeah the official well, pedal back will be they just grew out of it yeah yeah well how many times do you hear in a patient well it's coincidence yes exactly yeah <laughs> but anyway but you talk about something interesting there about the immune response and immunity i i don't know about you but i seem to find that more people have become um conscious of their immune system since covid and the yeah. fact that, you know, when we didn't have a vaccine and we didn't have any um, medication to fight it at the beginning, suddenly everyone woke up to the fact that actually my immune system is the thing that's going to help me. I mean, are you finding more people coming to you since COVID and, and how's, how's that come about, do you think? OK, it, uh, it certainly got extremely busy during that time um, and remains to be that way i think for certain individuals there was a stronger awareness 
of the immune system and the classic things being, you know, eat well, sleep well, exercise and relax. All these things are beneficial to the immune system and their opposites are suppressive to the immune system. That's just that's just biological fact. Um, but it was the part of the equation that was largely missing in the government's message to the populace was you know, make your immune system stronger, be as resilient as possible to all pathogens. You know, it was it that was not there in other areas. You know, in the complementary medicine space, that's always been there and that was built upon. But it's just so logical and it's so much not part of the media's interpretation of an individual's health. You know, it is rely upon pharmaceuticals to do the job for you. you know, so um, awareness of the immune system, I think, has become more so in certain circles, but not widespread, not, not across the board by any means. The other thing that came out of COVID, which I think is relevant to, to us as homeopaths, is there's been a great, in the UK, a greater recognition towards events following a viral infection. So post-viral, you know, UK has been trailing along behind other countries such as North America uh, for almost a decade now, where in the medical profession, you'll still encounter the idea of yuppie flu or you know, people who just need to pull their socks up on it. And when Boris Johnson was asked what's his view of long COVID, his reply was poppycock. So, you know, the prime minister of the country has that attitude where it's evident, you know, I've got people who are in, young people who are in their 30s, fit people who would exercise, cycle, uh, you know, they might be doing 100 kilometres a week or something like that, exceptionally looking after their health very well, hit by COVID, and they can't do these things, and they want to, and they're not making it up. And I've uh, got two patients in the last few weeks who are thankfully doing really well. But, you know, young people, a girl, okay, I say a girl, it's my age, <laughs> a, a woman in her late 20s who was signed off work. You know, she she's academic, high flyer, um, traveling around the globe working, hit by COVID, couldn't work for 18 months, you know got the right remedies into her and she's back now four days a week and there's other cases like that and I think that the impact of the of the viral pathogens in particular but not exclusively can include bacterial here and the long-term consequences after that the residual effects the, the you know the slowing down of health following these infections it starting to gain some more awareness in in the uk which, which is great and to bring it back to homeopathy i'm not boasting but i am boasting really we've known about this for hundreds of years now our literature is full of um references to medicines such as never been well since influenza never been well since uh chicken pox and going all the way back never been well since smallpox, diphtheria, et cetera, et cetera. We've recognised the long-term effects in certain individuals following a, a pathogen infection and the consequences it has on their health. So I'm hoping that that <laughs> does make more sense than, than how it was before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I um, didn't suffer long COVID, but I've had post-viral fatigue in the past. And I'm one of those people that went to the doctor where they 
basically just said, oh, we don't know what's wrong with you. And it doesn't yeah. seem to be anything because they do all the tests and nothing comes back. And yet you can't walk from the bedroom to the kitchen. So, you know, yeah. you know something's wrong. That's it. And that's that's where homeopathy also has its strong niche. I've never spoken about pathology states up to this point. But the con the idea of in allopathy of undifferentiated illness where you know all the biomarkers come back and you're fine, there's nothing wrong. You know, we can't find any pathology, we can't identify any pathogen, you have undifferentiated illness, there's nothing we can do. And and it's equivalent to you know, uh, somebody threatening to kill someone and the police can't really move it they can in certain circumstances but you know until the crime's been committed there's nothing wrong and it's the same with people's health until they're ill until they've got sick enough until they produce pathology or biomarkers that show hypo or hyperfunction they can't diagnose and do clinical treatment but with homeopathy this is the realm of the similament this is where we have one of our crowning places in in homeopathy is the use of the similimum for undifferentiated illness where there is no identifiable disease or pathogen and that can very often when prescribed accurately stimulate that person build up the immune system and move them outside of that yeah and it's a shame that i mean we are starting to see a few doctors who are aware of homeopathy and that are referring patients so there was um, an article in The Guardian not that long ago about a uh, um, uh, doctor's practice down in Brighton. Oh, yeah, I read it, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. had, um, in fact, I met one of the doctors recently um, and they were saying that, you know, they just got a bit more educated around what alternative therapies there were and therefore when they knew they could do nothing to help, they would then, um, you know, refer to the homeopath or the other appropriate complementary medicine. I mean, there's also the, the case that, you know, we've lost the homeopathic hospital in London. I don't know if you ever had an involvement in, in that hospital, did you? Uh, I taught there in the old days, yeah, but that's as much as it went, yeah. I mean, I had a friend who worked, he was a paediatrician in Great Ormond Street, and he said to me that in the days when the hospital was open, if a baby was born with chronic eczema, he as a paediatrician knew there was nothing he could do with it, and he used to take it round to the hospital, the homeopathic hospital. Yeah. And yet it's closed. So all those poor people who don't have access, I mean, financially, if they're reliant on the NHS and they don't have the funds to go and um, see a homeopath, or in fact don't have the understanding that a homeopath's there, they're just missing out on all of that. So, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it is. Now, um, we talked about your first book. You're writing another one. Yeah. How far you got through with that one? Oh, I tell you, uh, that's already three or four times bigger than the Burnett one. And I came close to finishing uh, the manuscript before getting it over to the publishers when um, uh, a guy I'm supervising came across five different lecture tapes, from mostly from Pasadena in North America. And it's Francisco Xavier Isiaga, Argentinian homeopath, who formulated the layers method of homeopathy so everything's pretty much there but i'm just on the the last half of the fifth lecture tape so this is something like 120 hours 
<laughs> uh, so I can't finish this until I've listened to all of these and taken good notes. And it's been great because it, there was when I did the, the original draft, there was a few things that were left unanswered. And I thought, I, yeah, I, I researched around the subject and gave opinions from other places and then rounded off the chapters. But now I've listened through almost all of these lecture tapes. I've got answers to at least 80% of the unanswered questions. So it's delayed it by at least coming up for a year now, but it's been worth it. And so, so yeah, that's, that's full steam ahead. I anticipate finishing the lecture tapes next month at the latest, and then it will just be finishing it all off, getting it to the publishers and then having them edit it. Mm -hmm. So what makes Isiaga so special for people who don't know about him and on, yeah. on homeopaths? Can you give a little bit of an explanation about why this guy is, was such a draw? Okay. Uh, Isiaga, uh, he was a genius for sure. And he formulated with great clarity uh, a really excellent framework of how to understand complex cases. And what I like, particularly about it it's not just that clarity but also how it segues with a lot of Burnett's work because Burnett would use lots of no-sos organ remedies um constitutional remedies similimum and I think Isiaga what he does is he frames it really nicely into how to understand hybrid complex cases and how to decipher them into discrete categories for where you where you prescribe and also what he did was he, he kind of married up that, those two categories again. So when you've got the classical and the complex prescribers and they're both saying we are the right ones and we get good results and they're both right in different ways. What Isiaga did was uh, he looked at the clinical work of some of the great classical homeopaths and said, well, you know, this is actually exactly the same as what some of these other people are doing and simplistic not so simplistic terms really, but it's what Burnett called the pathological similimum, the remedy that matches the disease or pathology state, and the symptomatic similimum, the remedy which matches more um, the classical constitutional state. And Isiaga, he draws a roadmap of how to understand, navigate and get through these complex cases without giving specific examples. It's, it's, quite a hard thing to, <laughs> to get across to the layperson, but uh, it, it provides really excellent clarity for long-term case management and practice. So have you got maybe an example that can bring that to life a little bit? What, a case example, yeah? Yeah, of how you, you know, how you strip away the layers. I mean, when I first got introduced to homeopathy, long before I actually... Um, Taught, I learned it as a, a profession. Um, someone talked to me about us being like an onion and stripping away yeah. the layers. So yeah. is it that kind of thing? Exactly that. Yeah. So I, I have to use some homeopathic terms for this. <laughs> That's the only way we can do it. So if you think of the nucleus, if you think of the centre of the case being the constitutional remedy, um, then let's have let's have a calc carb, calc carb constitutional individual, and then what Isiaga would call um, a pathobiographical event, what modern homeopaths would call more an etiological event, and what in everyday language means causation, something occurs that changes things, would be you've got this calc carb constitutional child, and then they have an emotional shock, 
it could be of grief, could be somebody in the family gets seriously sick, it could be the death of somebody in the near family, but there's an event that occurs that has a deep impact on that individual and it shifts them into a different expression. They go from being, say, Calcarba, very strong, independent players. The kids, you can sit down with jigsaws, trains, uh, building blocks, and they'll amuse themselves for half an hour to two hours. And they have then scroll forward to age six. They have this big shock, and it shifts their behavior, their personality. Now what happens is they become dependent players. They want a parent or a carer or a sibling with them at all times. They want somebody to put their focus on them and be with them because they feel insecure. And uh, the parents notice this shift from, you know, we used to be able to set him up with the trains. Now we have to be there and he's following us around the house and he's even coming into the toilet when we need a pee. You know, this, this, is, this is a distinct change. So now we've got two layers. We've got the calcarb constitution in the centre. We've got, a, say, a pulsatilla one around the outside from the etiology of the emotional shock. Now, harking back to the chronic disease states, the miasms, let's say he's inherited a soric miasm, um, age 10, he starts coming out in eczema. That's getting inflamed skin in the bends. And let's say the nails grow thicker and distorted and the eczema splits and oozes. And this would match now the remedies of material medica like graffitis, antimonium crudum, petroleum, mesurium. He's now got an eczema state on top of the pulsatilla, on top of the cow carb. Yeah. Now, let's say by age 12, the parents are using stronger and stronger hydrocortisone. The eczema keeps getting infected. It keeps flaring up. And they're reaching the outer limits of hydrocortisone strength to use. They think, well, let's try an alternative. Let's see if something else can make an impact here. And they take him to the homeopath. In a classical perspective, there's the term totality of symptoms, where you take a case, you take all the eczema symptoms, all the behavioral symptoms, sleep, food desires, et cetera, et cetera, and you try and find one unifying remedy that covers the entire case. In this instance, that isn't possible. In this instance, there's graffitis, there's pulsatilla, there's calcarb, there's serina. Yeah, so there's four distinct layers. And what Isiaga taught was you simply start with the outermost layer, in this instance, the eczema, and remove that. Then you address the pulsatilla state and remove that. And then you strengthen the calcarea carbonica state. And this takes three to four years, approximately, in average time, can be quicker, can be slower. And, and that was the beauty of his system, where he just described and outlined how you treat through these separate layers as opposed to covering everything, which is often futile. But he did say, you know, in 20% of cases, you'll get a double where um, you could have the calcarb child steps into the pulsatilla and then produces, say, a pulsatilla asthma. So now pulsatilla matches the asthma and the behavioral traits. And you get a good response in that. But that's 20% of cases. Yeah, 80% do not follow that. And then he also said, Okay, in less than 5% of cases, you'll get a triple, but you've got the calcarb constitution, followed by they go deeper into the calcarb after the emotional shock, and then they produce a calcarb lesion or pathology state. And when you give calcarb, it penetrates through the lesion fundamental constitution. That's less than 5%.
But when homeopaths are asked to present at conferences, seminars, and in the classroom, they choose their best cases. Those cases adhere to the 5% and the 20% because they're clearest, fantastic results. Yeah, But that's not clinical reality. Clinical reality is the 80 to 95% where it's discrete different layers. So hope that's not too technical for the non -head. No, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. So in all of this research that you did on Isiaga, was there any aha moment for you that there was something that just switched the light on for something that you know you you'd never thought about before or yeah, was there anything really that grabbed you out of his out of what you did in your research i think there, were, there was clarification um of things that were already there so things became a lot clearer into how um how complex cases can present there was really nice parallels with burnett's work because if there had been complete contradiction of that I'd have had to scratch my head and go well hang on <laughs> like, can they both be right if they think the opposite thing but what was most gratifying was you know the lesion the pathology prescription is essentially Burnett's pathological similament so there was in, an increasing number of parallels which was really gratifying um I think the aha moments was just the great clarity it gave to tricky cases and not to keep banging on about it but also the appreciation of time and treatment strategies to many cases you know when the first graduated and full of zeal and enthusiasm I'd have far too high expectations of myself you know somebody would come in and say I've got xyz how soon do you think you can get rid of it and I'd go oh, maybe a month maybe a two months looking back now that's crazy yeah now I'd go yeah we should probably with correct treatment get get really good improvement over the next four to six months but to root out the predispositions to this I'm thinking three to four years and given that type of communication to time span and duration of treatment to patients is incredibly valuable for um, patient management and appreciation of clinical reality. So I think that there wasn't, there wasn't a startling brand new information aha moment, but there was consolidation of what I'd already done and appreciation for how long it takes and how you keep going and how you recognize where you are in the phases of treatment. And so when you talk about that long-term treatment, are you seeing your clients every, every month? Uh, the general pattern is to see them either monthly or two monthly. Clinic's incredibly busy, so a lot of people I'll see two monthly, and that's actually really beneficial if it's fertility cases or cases that have uh, the cycle, because often the first one, depending on what part of the month you treat them, the first cycle after starting treatment, just starting to get results. So two months seems to be a good plan for those but out of necessity two months six six to eight weeks is what's the average follow-up time for the majority of people at the moment unless they're urgent but once you've treated through the lesion state and enter the fundamental phase and then i'll branch it out to every three months and then once i'm down to the constitutional state it's every four months approximately or every six months um, because stuff happens in between treatments that could start to initiate the evolvement of a new layer. Um, but yeah, 
the time span lengthens the longer and longer treatment is. So by the time treating them for two years, three years, I'll be seeing them twice to three times a year maximum, all things being good. So, so it's not just a money spinning thing. It's, you know, it does go down. And that's probably comforting for people to hear. Patients um, and public are wise. They don't, they don't keep spending and spending when nothing happens. And that's one of, that's one of the things that we should consider when justifying homeopathy. You know, you know, people won't keep coming back and putting money on the table for no results. We have to be clinically effective. So, yeah, and long term don't want to be coming every month or two months you know want to be getting better and stronger and needing less medicine and less visits that's, that's yeah. the way it should be um conscious of time uh, dion um a couple of questions that uh lisa tends to ask uh, when she does her interviews what's your favorite remedy if you had to take one remedy away to a desert island what would it be Ah, what a question. That's, that's uh, completely anti-homeopathy, <laughs> unless unless you know your constitution. So because Asiaga would say, you know, constitutional prescribing is not curative, it's preventative. So favourite remedy, uh, if it was me specifically, then I'd choose my constitutional. Uh, but if it was in clinic, then our... Uh, that's an impossible question because I'd have to argue for at least a favourite 10. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you talk about, you know, favourite 10, etc. I mean, I know I've got my 36 kit, a remedy kit for my first aid. I mean, that for me is a great way for people to get into homeopathy. Do you do much with people around that? What, what do you, how do you help people get their heads around a bit of um, homeopathic first aid? Yeah, strongly, strongly encourage it. I recommend um, every anyone who's interested to get good remedy kit. I buy the Helios kit preferentially, um, and particularly if somebody's pregnant going into labour, and especially the phase after labour, to use the yellow Helios kit. And then, you know, when they contact me and say, "Oh, you know, got the beginnings of mastitis or something like that," and say, "Okay, go to your kit." use the you know the belladonna or the phytolac or you know whichever is appropriate remedy and get them to read uh, acquire a good book i like the miranda castro books um the andrew Lockie books things like that where they can have a handful of remedies and some literature to refer to it is fantastic and as i've just said about the you know the isiaga with the different layers outside as well as this we've got the acute satellite remedies around each layer. So if, if, if the parents know, okay, they've got uh, a kid who's predominantly say calcarb or sulfur or silica, there's remedies that are complementary to that for the acutes, belladonna, aconite, apis, etc., that they can have in preparation. When you know the history, you say, okay, when they start getting the scratchy throat before the tonsils become inflamed and you resort to antibiotics, use the belladonna 30s three times a day for five days and if you're accurate you can avert many instances of people having to go down the route of using antibiotics with correct prescribing sometimes they have to resort to that and you can prescribe alongside but you know if we can take out a percentage of that that's good for everyone so yeah strongly encourage home prescribing and on the you know the healing um, process, we've talked about immunity, but do you? What's your view on whether everyone can heal? Yeah, absolutely, everyone can. You know, animals on planet Earth are great at healing. You know, there's such a 
such a system amongst if you just stick to the mammals or if you just stick to the humans you know we get colds we get cuts and bruises and our bodies just self-repair it's astounding it's really amazing how we can do that and that process can get slowed down or locked up through lots of different mechanisms and i think homeopathy is the great thing at unlocking and promoting that but we have a natural innate ability as humans to repair ourselves that's that's what we do if we've got enough enough nutrition getting enough sleep you know so i think that's available to us at every stage of life until the end so yeah we've all got that brilliant brilliant well i don't know is there any any parting words that you know for people who haven't tried homeopathy that um you want to share with us well i think yeah that that depends on what you want treatment for so you know if you've got a specific condition and you're locked in the trajectory of lifelong orthodox prescription why not dip your toe in why not try something that can perhaps mitigate the severity of your symptoms um, and possibly even long term help them greatly so it's the great thing about homeopathy is when prescribed carefully it's it's hit or miss you know there's very little potential of collateral damage person is prescribed a remedy if it's low potency and looked after properly by the practitioner you can trial it in pretty much all pathological conditions and just see where you get to it you give it ideally give it three to six months minimum if you're not getting the returns if you're not getting any benefits from it after that time then there's something wrong there's something wrong with either the prescriptions or what's happening but it's a safe option Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Dion, it's been really great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for doing this. And um, your book's going to be out when? Well, that, that's, I'll get it to the publishers this year and then the whole editing process takes longer than I anticipated. So uh, I'm going to say 2023. It's realistic. Good luck, Good luck with it. And hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Take See care. Bye. Bye.